Good morning, good afternoon, good evening if you're watching online. Uh, so thankful that you could be here today. Uh, I want to take a moment and just anyone that's watching online here today, I want to encourage you with something as Easter approaches and as we move forward beyond Easter is that a number of you continue to watch online, which is great, and I want to encourage that. But I want to plant a seed as a possibility, is what does it look like for you to invite someone that's in your circle into your home uh, to share this time together? We really value community. We want to continue to lift up community, and so encourage you in community. And so whether it's Easter or the weeks after, what would it look like in the morning to gather together in your home or someone else's home? or in the evening uh, when this is on it, uh, that you would gather, you connect, and then afterwards you discuss these questions that are on the screen, that you share a meal, whatever it may be, um, that you spend some time together. And so we wanted to plant that seed uh, for those that continue to worship at home, which is great and fine, and I want to say hello again to everyone here. We're going to be in Matthew 21, so I invite you to turn in your Bible, on your uh, device, whatever it may be, to Matthew chapter 21. We're going to be looking at one of the narratives of Jesus's ride into Jerusalem and what that means uh, both now and uh, and moving uh, forward too for us. So 40 days ago, we began a journey, almost 40 days ago, we began a journey to the cross. And as it's already been mentioned, we are walking into Holy Week, anticipating Good Friday and also anticipating Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. And for Jesus, this was a walk, a ride toward his death. This is something that he knew what the week held, how it was going to unfold. He, he knew that his death was only days away, and he was walking toward death. When we began this series, Dust to Dust, I told you that this is based on Genesis chapter 3, a passage where it says that from, from dust we come, from dust we are, and to dust we will return. It's this reminder of our mortality that we have a first breath and we have a last breath. And it's something we don't like to think about. And in our culture, oftentimes, we just uh, try to avoid. But this last year has really forced us to consider what this means and and to to, to take it face to face. Now, I mention this at every service I do, every funeral I do, this verse. But there's two services, particularly the first two funerals that I've ever done, that I ever did, one for a mid-30-year-old and then also for a 20-year-old, a former youth group student of mine, where I read these words and they felt so very wrong. It was hard to consider the mortality, the death of such a young person. It was a reminder of the vulnerability, a reminder of the value of life, a reminder of the fragility of life that we have and the gift of life. And it's a reminder that Jesus was in his early 30s when he walked towards the cross. What he was processing as he journeyed this path. It's a sobering reality, but it's a reminder that we have been gifted with life. And so what does that mean to us on this Palm Sunday, this Holy Week, moving toward Easter? Well, let's take a look to start in Matthew chapter 21. It says this. Starting in verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send send them right away. 
This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt a foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? This is a question I encourage you to ponder today and this week is who is this Jesus? Who is this? Now the crowds that gathered were very large in the time that this narrative unfolds. There's normally about 40,000 people in Jesus's day who lived in Jerusalem. But approximately another 200,000 people would descend upon Jerusalem for Passover. So you have almost a quarter million people in the city there celebrating Passover. But Passover was not just a religious observance. Observance. It was an observance as a reminder of the release of captivity for the Israelites into freedom from Egypt. So Passover reminded them of how the Spirit of God passed over so many homes while they were in captivity in Egypt. And the firstborn were lost, but those who had the doors marked, they were saved. So Passover is this reminder every year of what the Lord did bringing them from captivity. But now, these same people were in a new form of captivity, generations later. They were under Rome's oppressive rule in Jerusalem. And so as they remembered the captivity they found freedom from, they looked around the city and they saw a new form of captivity. Now, Rome was fully aware of the reality of what was happening in the city, the gathering, the many people coming in. They did what any oppressive power would do is would show military force more and more, saying, yes, we see you. We know you're unhappy. We know about the riots that have happened. We know about the different things that are going on, but we're here to stand against you. See, Rome ruled with an iron fist. And I want you to think of a procession riding into the city of a Roman army. I want you to think about the cavalry on horses coming in, what this would look like, would feel like, would smell like, what the sounds would be. Foot soldiers walking alongside, their armor, their helmets, their weapons, their banners. Gold eagles on poles, the colors on the banners. The marching feet, the creaking leather, the clinking bridles, the beating drums, the swirling dust. This was a sign of we are here. Don't try anything. On the other side of the city, I want you to imagine another procession. In verse 7, we see that Jesus enters. And this is what happens. is They, the disciples, brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. So again, the contrast that's here. You've got the Roman army coming in, and then you've got Jesus on a donkey with some cloaks. Radical, different views. But why did they say, who is this? Why did the people proclaim what they 
proclaims. I think if we look back at Matthew 21, verses 4 and 5, we see a prophecy that Zechariah spoke many, many years before. And the people who cheered, who cut the palm branches, who laid their cloaks, they knew these words. From Zechariah, these are the words that is referenced in Matthew 21. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a coat, full of a donkey. Verse 10 here. So they're seeing Jesus ride in. And verse 10 says this, I will take away the chariots of Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. So in Matthew 21, you have the people cheering Jesus riding in because they're seeing prophecy being fulfilled. They're like, okay, these chariots and these war horses that we're seeing from Rome, it says that this king is going to take them out, that this oppressive empire is going to be gone. And this Jesus, yeah, he's riding on a donkey, which is kind of weird, um, but somehow he's going to fulfill this prophecy. So the people are celebrating Passover. They're celebrating the liberation from Egypt that happened so long before, but they're anticipating a new Passover, a new liberation that's coming in the form of this person riding on a donkey into the city. Because verse 8 says this, these things, even if we've been in the church and we've heard these things, these are why in the world are there palm branches and cloaks like we read? As very large crowds spread their cloaks on the road while they cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So these are very intentional acts. They are intentionally communicating something by the palm branches, by the cloaks, by the word Hosanna. See, what they were communicating was when they cried out Hosanna, they meant save us like you've already heard, but not save us like we experience. Not like the salvation, the forgiveness of sin, like we sang about today. When they were saying Hosanna, they were proclaiming an ultra-nationalistic zealot phrase, Hosanna, meaning save us from the suppressive Roman Empire. Crush this empire. It was a radical cry of freedom. Save us from Rome. Your donkey is not looking too powerful, but somehow save us from Rome. And palm branches, they weren't like, hey, let's just find some palm branches and lay them down and wave them. Palms were not peaceful symbols like we were. It was this, this again, nationalistic cry of, of rebellion as they're waving these palm branches. So little kids, as they're having their parade, they're just like, rebel, rebel. No, no they're doing it like for Jesus this morning. So you have the palm branches, you have the laying of the palms, you have this defiance of Rome, this aggressive political statement that is being made. And Jesus knows all this. He knows the situation. He knows the surrounding. And as he's riding in, I wonder how his heart is being torn of like, oh, these people are cheering me on, but they're missing the point. Because Jesus has his Father's work in mind. Jesus has the kingdom of heaven being brought forth. Jesus knows that he's heading to the cross to be a sacrifice not the king as they think. Jesus was this contrast to Rome. And Jesus still is contrast to the Romes of our world. 
Jesus came into that city not with an overthrowing mind, but rather what Paul describes in Philippians 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Jesus had this mindset when he was on the cross, when he rode into Jerusalem, when he was in ministry, when he was growing up. Being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of an emperor, dictator, ruler, president, no, none of these things. As a servant, the lowliest, humble position is being made in human likeness. Jesus rode in as a servant, not as a powerful figure. Jesus was humble. See, we understand power. We understand influence. We understand prestige. We're drawn to these things. We, we give our attention and our energy to these things. But this is part of the human nature within us. I mean, this is part of philosophy and thought and just who we've become. Philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche argued that love diminishes our capacity to assert power Therefore, it should be rejected. So what he's saying is he said, you shouldn't allow love to impact your life because when you start to love, it impacts power. And power is what, is, is what we as humans need to ascribe to. So he's saying just avoid power. Napoleon Bonaparte said, God is on the side of the one that has the most cannons. That's his philosophy of God's side. Adolf Hitler took on Nietzsche's philosophy of this will of power that I just mentioned as a political ideology. So Hitler said ambition, achievement, and the striving to reach the highest possible position in life at any cost is the human ideal. This is modern-day terrorism. This is ancient Rome. This is power, political parties looking for power. Whatever I have to do to get this, I'll do it. But Jesus came in a radically different way. He came as a contrast. See, we talk about gospel, the gospel. We point to the scriptures, the good news. But gospel is not a uniquely Christian, biblical word by any means. Gospel simply means good news. See, Rome had a gospel. The gospel according to Caesar. So those Roman armies would ride into the city with all their power and prestige and they would come back proclaiming the good news of Caesar, that a victory had been won, that they had defeated another group of people, that they had killed everyone and they had damaged the cities and they had brought back all this and they were proclaiming this gospel of Caesar, that the enemies had been killed. There would be the celebration. This would be good news to Rome. It was good news to those embracing power. But Jesus came again in contrast. In Luke 4, he said this, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because that is why I was sent. See, Jesus came proclaiming this radically contradictory reality, one of humility and service and forgiveness and enemy love. The kingdom of God is different than the kingdom of the world. The kingdom of God makes sure everyone has daily bread is seeks to forgive debts and sin, avoids temptation to commit evil against our neighbors, calls us to a life of forgiveness. 
And the gospel of Jesus looks like Matthew 5.44, which says, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's hard. That's not fun. I don't want to pray for those that persecute me. I don't want to love my enemies. Or the gospel of Jesus looks like the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the laws and prophets hang on these two commands. These are hard things. Or like 1 Corinthians 13, which just gets relegated often into weddings and for for married couples. But this is the gospel of Jesus, of what love is. We're called to be patient. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. This is a picture of a surrendered life of Jesus. But this begs the question of why did Jesus ride in? Why did Jesus head to the cross? Why? Well, we know to die for our sins and to give us eternal life. We understand that. But I want us to take a little step closer this week to really understand as we walk through this week, when we walk towards death with Jesus, something that happens. So let's skip ahead six chapters here in Matthew to Matthew 27. And I want to look at one more scene that will unfold in our, our week here, a couple of days down the road here. So Matthew 27, starting in verse 11. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? So again, this is what the people thought. Here's the new king of the Jews coming in. You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one of you do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. So there, before Pilate, before the governor, stood two Jesuses. Two radically different Jesuses. See, we know about Jesus the Messiah. We've talked about his kingdom mentality. But what do we know about Jesus Barabbas? Well, the, the Gospels tell us a few things about Jesus Barabbas, that Matthew says he was well-known, as we just read. Mark said that he was an insurrectionist who committed murder in the uprising. Luke said that he was part of the insurrection in the city, and he was a murderer. And then John, he took part in the rebellion. So Jesus Barabbas was guilty of insurrection. He was guilty of murder. He was guilty. Then there's Jesus, who's innocent. Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, who called us to love our enemies, while Jesus Barabbas said, no, meet violence with violence. Meet anger with anger. Jesus is the one calling us to love our enemies, to, to love others as ourselves, to, to do good to those who harm us. 
again, radically different views on how to walk through the world. And the crowds, as you know, Pilate brings the, the two Jesuses before the crowds. And he says, which one do you want me to set free? And the crowds asked for Jesus Barabbas to be set free. And we, as human beings, we default to power. We default to just this natural inclination towards the powers that be. Jesus Barabbas was getting things done. And there stood Jesus, the Messiah, next to him, innocent. And see, we as human beings, we will always, always default to power unless we're surrendered to Jesus. We will always default to power unless we're surrendered to Jesus. And so the crowd and Pilate sets Jesus Barabbas free. And I can only imagine what Barabbas was thinking in that moment. Whew, I'm free. Once again, I made it out. My way is the right way. The crowds love me. I'm sure he was celebrating. But I wonder if there was a moment, maybe later on in life, where he took a step back and he looked and he remembered Jesus, the Messiah, standing there with him. One who was innocent, who was being falsely accused. And Jesus Barabbas realized that the cross that Jesus, the Messiah, took was really his own cross. That the punishment that Jesus took was Barabbas's punishment. That although Barabbas found himself free, he realized that he really wasn't free. That he was still bound by his own sin, by his own temptation, by his own thirst for power. See, what I've, what I've realized in life, for as much as I want to be like Jesus the Messiah and I want to follow after him and I strive to, is that I am like Barabbas. Is that I often do my own things and go my own way and try to make things happen how I think they should happen. And I often default towards power and influence and prestige because I gotta, I gotta get things done. But then I realize, wait, those things, that sin, that bounds me. But Jesus took that. And I wonder if there's a point where Barabbas grieved. Maybe like we should grieve. And, and I realize that I'm Barabbas and I'm like, Jesus, no, this is my sin. This is my sin. I know you're taking it, but no, this is my sin. I committed that. I said that. I thought that. I did that. I didn't do this. Whatever it was. And I deserve the shame that goes with it. I deserve the guilt. It's on me. And Jesus is like, no. I'm taking your place. No, 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 I'm forgiving your sin. It's already been taken. No, put them, just keep those handcuffs on me. I will pay for it. I will self-atone. I will, I will do this. Jesus is like, no, walk in freedom. Walk in freedom. See, the word tells me this, that while I was a sinner, Christ died for me. Same thing for you. The word tells us that I am saved by grace, not by works. The word tells me that God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. But it's hard for me to just say, I'm forgiven. I stand covered by the grace of God. 
because there's that fleshly side of me that says I need to pay for my sin. I just live on that guilt. I live on that shame. I live on that doubt. I live on that. That's just, just what keeps me going. For me to fully surrender to Jesus, for me to step away like Barabbas did in this ultimate freedom, Jesus take my punishment, it's humbling. I can try to take that sin back and everything, but, but it's really about it's just submitting, saying, thank you, Jesus. Because just as Barabbas walked out that day thinking he was going to die, that walk towards death, Jesus came and took his place. Just like I walked through life with death before me, eternal death before me, Jesus came and took my place and gave me an opportunity. And this is the same thing for everyone who has received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We were all walking towards death until Jesus stepped in and said, let me take it all. This is the message of Easter. This is the message of resurrection. This is the reason Jesus rode into Jerusalem. This is the reason Jesus walked to the cross. As you read the narrative, as you read Jesus' thoughts, there were moments where he was just saying, Father, if it's your will, take this from me. Jesus humbly submitted himself because he saw your face. He knows your name. He loves you. He loves me. This love is so wide and deep and vast and high and expansive and welcoming. That's why Jesus humbly rode into Jerusalem. But Jesus humbly gave himself on the cross. And that's why we celebrate resurrection next week. So my prayer for you is that this week, as you walk through Holy Week, as you process every step you take, just as you're, you're walking throughout, you're remembering that this was a walk towards death. And my response is not more shame or guilt, but my response is gratitude. My response is love. My response is thank you, Jesus. And I share that with those around me. I share that same love, that grace, that mercy, that forgiveness Jesus offered to me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are so, so good. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Nothing that was deserved on our part, but it's by grace we've been saved. Lord, I thank you that you humbly rode in, just gentle and lowly. Lord, with a, a power to save us like the world could not comprehend. Father, forgive us for defaulting towards power Forgive us for putting our trust in other things or people. And this week, may we constantly be reminded of the price you paid on the cross. And God, may our response be thank you. Lord, for those here in this place, Lord, those who watch, this begins with a yes. It begins with a journey. It begins with this this prayer of saying yes to following you. And so, Father, if there's anyone who's never said yes to following you, who's never had their sins forgiven, who constantly tries to bear that weight that I was talking about, Lord, you're willing to take that sin, to step in. You've already done it. It's just us with open hands giving it to you. So if that's you, you've never confessed sin, you've never received Jesus' forgiveness, just quietly in your own heart and mind, God hears, God knows. 
that you pray something like this. God, I'm a sinner. I've done wrong. I've carried this burden, which is not mine to carry. Carried this sin, this guilt, this shame. But Lord, today I surrender it to you and I say thank you. And so today, I trust Jesus as my Savior, the one taking my sin, and I receive your forgiveness. And so, Lord, beginning today, I want to walk in your ways and your will and walk in this forgiveness with a heart and a mind of gratitude. So, Lord Jesus, for each one of us, we pray that this week would be that of gratitude, that of being constantly reminded of the grace and mercy that we have been given through Jesus. Lord, we love you. Thank you that you love us. And we pray this in Jesus' strong and powerful name. Amen.